Chivalry here took a final farewell. It had to yield to the heightened intensity of war, just as all fine and personal feeling has to yield when machinery gets the upper hand. Leutnant Ernst Junger, Fusilier Regiment, Feldmarschall, Prince Albrecht von Preussen, Hanoverscher, Nummer 73, Guillemont, The Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 20, Psalm, Strolling Along in Gillymong. If you notice a difference in my voice right now, it's not a cold or that I've finally conquered puberty. Nope, I am now recording the BFWWP through a new Blue Yeti microphone given to me by my older daughter for the recent Father's Day here in the U.S. I am just stoked. My younger daughter, the one who really knows way more about World War One than any younger daughter should, uh, she gave me my first socket wrench set, which, um, which is also something I really, really wanted. So overall, I'm pretty psyched. Okay, so... Admin notes. Uh, just wanted to announce that I've set up the podcast on Patreon. The link is patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. Um, here's the moment. If you like, you can fast forward for the next minute or so. But if you're interested, please uh, continue listening on. So real quick and simple. What is Patreon. Patreon is a site where you can sign up for recurring donations to your favorite artists, musicians, or podcasters. It is all strictly voluntary, of course. There is no requirement to donate because then that really wouldn't be a donation, now would it? Now, if you choose to do so, the Patreon page for the BFWWP is set up for recurring donations only when I release an episode. And there are a few perks. Every patron gets access to episode transcripts in PDF format, early release of episodes, the opportunity to have your questions personally answered on an episode, and for some exceptionally generous souls, the ability to even choose a battle to be covered. Donations start at one U.S. dollar. Again, the link is patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. And it'll be listed with each episode that is released from now on. Again, patronage is voluntary and many thanks in advance if you choose to become a patron. All right, back to the line now. We're heading over to the extreme southern flank of the British line on the Somme front to a village named Guillemont. Guillemont, sitting on the end of a spur branching from the Tiqueval-Posier ridgeline, had just enough height at 143 meters above sea level to be commanding ground and thus 
be a maddening thorn in the side of the British Fourth Army from mid-July through early September of 1916. Keep in mind that as we cover the struggle for Guillemot in this episode and time frame, the following battles were raging all along the Somme front. The Australians hammering at Pozières, the Scots and others grinding away at High Wood, the South African Brigade and follow-on British units fighting the Inferno in Delville Wood, and the French Sixth Army clearing ground at the banks of the Somme. For miles and miles, the ground shook and sprouted earth and fire, and the night sky flashed and shrieked as iron rain crashed down from the heavens. The Battle of the Somme was already a monstrous struggle that, like its twin Verdun a couple of hundred miles away, was already defying the definition of what battle was. This wasn't a relatively neat and decisive affair like Waterloo or Gettysburg had been. These battles just went on and on and on. A cauldron of shell holes, smoke, and fire, calling in ever more men to be consumed. The village of Guillemont was to be another corner of hell on the Somme. Located on today's D20 road, Guillemont before the Great War was another one of thousands of French farming villages. Its residents worked the land nearby, and the small and low buildings lining the few streets told of simple peasant life. It was the type of place where the inhabitants might stare openly at you if you, a stranger, passed through. Keep in mind that being a stranger might mean you were from Tipval, Albert, Bapome, or some other locale just a few miles away. Life here was simple, perhaps even small, but doubtless the locals did not see it that way. To the northeast, just a kilometer and a half away, was Jeanchi. It looks like Ginchi under English grammar rules. And to the northwest was Longuval and its attached Delville Wood. In between Longuval and Guillemont sat Waterlot Farm, which was a formidable obstacle to the attacking Tommies. To the east lay Comble. To the southwest was Montabin. Further to the south was Maltzhorn Farm and Angle Wood. And it was here that the British and French trench lines met. To the west of Guillemont was Troneswood, and between the two, there was a light railway stop named Guillemont Station, and to the south of it, the village quarry. The German second position ran southeast from Longueval to the Guillemont Station and Rock Quarry, where these sites had been fortified and turned into strong defense points. All around Guillemont village was bare ground, giving the Germans excellent views. Under some of that ground, and the village in particular, were elaborate and deep dugouts, as well as extensive tunnel systems designed to protect German Sommkampfers from the hellish artillery above ground. Guillemont had to be taken in order to continue the breach of the German second position, as well as, because it was there, 
and in German hands. It also needed to be captured and cleared in order to take out any enfilading resistance towards the French 6th Army, whose 20th Iron Corps manned the line between the Tommies and the River Somme itself. This would free the French to continue pushing up the north bank of the river, clearing out any German resistance in its path. It didn't take a high level of intelligence to see that any attack on Guillemot would be tough, but especially those coming from the west. So, of course, our first attack on the village would be coming from the west. With the second strike on the Somme by the British 4th Army in the early hours of the 14th of July, 1916, the British had finished clearing the last of the German resistance out of Trones Wood. Setting up a perimeter along Trones Wood's eastern perimeter, Tommies there could see that the next target was the village of Gillimong, and it would have to be attacked over open fields with an uphill slope. Fighting for possession of Maltzhorn Farm and Arrowhead Copse to the south of Guillemot were the focus of the days following the taking of Trones Wood on the 14th, and other limited attacks were probing the Germans in the area as well. But all of these were piecemeal assaults that saw heavy casualties for the British with extremely limited territorial gains. The first attack on Guillemont itself came on the 23rd when the 2nd Green Howards attacked from Longueval Alley and the 19th Manchesters pushed out of Trons Wood. The artillery prep had thoroughly wrecked the village and some of the forward trench lines, but the defending German Reserve Regiment 104 was battered but ready. This first attack failed when the Manchester men found the German barbed wire uncut and the Howard's men walked through their own smokescreen into the Manchester's sector. The Germans mowed them down with machine guns that had survived the bombardment. It was the same old story. The next attack came on the 30th of July, after another pounding bombardment of the known German line and Guillemont village. The Germans, however, replied with a heavy counter-barrage of their own, that soaked the stumps of Trons Wood with H.E. and gas shells. The Tommies of the 30th Division advanced from the west into heavy fog at zero hour, which made everything in the shattered landscape that much more confusing. To the south, the ruins of Malthorn Farm were taken, but in the immediate vicinity of Guillemont, the Germans at the quarry and Guillemont Station tore into the attacking Tommy lines with concentrated machine gun fire once again. Despite the Germans fighting like devils, the 2nd Battalion Royal Scots Fusiliers managed to enter the set of broken buildings that was the village from the southwest. Here's where the German dugouts and tunnels came into use. Once the Scots Fusiliers were inside the village, the Germans popped up from behind and cut them off with no way out, and the Scots fought until they were killed or captured. Of a battalion of 750 men, 650 became casualties. With the failure 
of this second attack. Both the British and Germans caught their breath and continued to bombard each other mercilessly. While the horror of the crushing artillery has been a steady feature of the vast majority of our episodes on the Somme, it seems to have been a particularly key and dominating feature of Guillemot. After the 30th of July attacks, the 55th Division stepped in to take over the sector, and British gunner George Worsley related his experiences in Lynn MacDonald's book titled Somme. Quote, The night we took over, we had a terrible time going up the line. There was a tremendous bombardment going on, and we were getting nearer and nearer to it. We had to move into a gun position to the right of Trons Wood, alongside the road, with Guillemont just in front, and the battery we were taking over from firing right up to the last minute. Then they pulled out, and we pulled in and started firing. We only had five guns to fire with, because even before we started, one gun was knocked out. I was in the signaler's dugout, so I didn't see it. But we heard the shell exploding and saw a stretcher being carried past. A little while later, we got a signal through from Dublin Trench. It said, Please send down a burial party at once to 1st of the 3rd West Lancashire Field Ambulance Regimental Aid Post. And it was signed by the medical officer of the 277 Brigade, a Major Riley. It was naive of him, really. But it was his first night in there, and he probably didn't realize the situation. We had no one to spare to send a burial party for one man. When the daylight came, there were bodies all over the place. Bloated bodies they hadn't been able to clear away. The guns were literally wheel to wheel, and we were firing, 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 24 hours a day. There were gun lines everywhere, a continuous row of them. There was no end to them, and all of them were firing almost non-stop right round the clock. It began to get on your nerves after a while. It wasn't so much that we were being shelled, although we were, because the Germans used to put over these big 5.9 shells, and then they'd follow them up with shrapnel shells to catch anyone who was running away. But what really began to get me was the sound of our own guns. The sound waves were going through your head all the time, like a tuning fork being struck on your steel helmet. A terrible sound. Ping, ping, ping. This terrible vibration day and night and this noise in your head, just like a tuning fork being rung again and again. It went right through you. You couldn't get away from it. It went right down into your nerves. End quote. A third attack on Guillemot was launched a week after George Worsley and his division came into the line on the 8th of August. The guns had never ceased pounding the Germans, and the Germans retaliated in kind. Units from two divisions were to take part this time. Battalions from the British 2nd Division would attack Guillemot Station and the northern part of the village's ruins. Units from the 55th Division would go for the rest of the village. This third attack went in 20 minutes after 4 a.m. on the 8th of August, 
under conditions of heavy mist and smoke from the artillery. It was another disaster. As soon as the British artillery lifted, the Germans knew this was the signal for the enemy's attack, as well as their chance to beat it back right away. The Germans shelled no man's land blindly, hoping to catch attacking Englishmen as they rushed across. But the biggest thing was that British artillery just wasn't hitting the right places. Those dugouts and tunnels where the Germans squirreled away their machine guns until it was time to rush them up into the ruins and mow down the enemy. Until these could be destroyed, Guillemot would go on holding out forever as the blood of the United Kingdom's men gushed and spurted before it. A succession of battalions were thrown into the battle between the 8th and the 9th, all to no avail. It was during this time that two Victoria Crosses were awarded for actions above and beyond what was expected. The first went to 2nd Lieutenant Gabriel George Curry of the 1st of the 4th South Lancashires, who not only directed his men to complete digging a trench under heavy fire, but went out into no man's land under the same fire and brought back his wounded commander, and then rallied his men and led them forward. The second Victoria Cross went to Captain Noel Chavas, medical officer of the 1st of the 10th King's Liverpool Regiment. Over the course of the 8th and the 9th, Captain Chavas was a force to be reckoned with as he continuously went out into no man's land to recover wounded men, sometimes very close to German lines and sometimes under fire. Chavas was to become a member of a very rare club. This was the first of two Victoria Crosses to be awarded to him. The second VC would come a year later in the Ypres salient, although sadly, it would be issued posthumously. Small attacks continued over the next few days, little penny packet assaults that the Germans shot down with ease. In mid-August, the 55th Division was relieved by the 3rd, having lost 4,100 men for little gain. Shellfires swept the Guillemont, Jeanchy, Tronswood area unceasingly, like a deadly rainstorm that never seemed to end. A new British attack was planned for the 18th, after a solid 24 hours of punishing artillery bombardment of Guillemont and the surrounding sector. Units from two divisions, again, were to attack together at Guillemont and in the vicinity of Jeanchy. Two things would be different this time. First, British gunners were going to use the creeping barrage so highly regarded by the French. These guys were looking to become ever more effective in assisting the PBIs. And after a month and a half of constant operations on the Somme, skill levels had risen to where a choreographed creeping barrage could be undertaken. The second thing was that the French themselves would be assisting this time, attacking Englewood well south of Guillemont to help set the stage for Tommies to grab high ground nearby. Joint attacks had been planned all throughout this time, but weather or poor planning had led most of those plans to break down. This latest attack 
went off on the morning of the 18th, with the artillery shifting from pounding Guillemot's walls down to brick piles to now churning no man's land. Over the top went the Tommies, and as they did, the curtain of shells in front of them rose and shifted 50 yards forward. It would do this every 60 seconds, and the infantry were expected to stay behind and clear all obstacles in front of them in that time. Facing the oncoming British were units of the German 27th Division, which had already bled some 3,500 men from just holding Guillemot under artillery fire. A Dr. Forderer, the medical officer of Infantry Regiment 120, from a passage in Jack Sheldon's The German Army on the Somme, 1914 through 1916, recounted the attack on the village. Quote, Dawn broke on 18 August. The enemy began the morning by bringing down a hellish drum fire. The battle line was held by tired, agonized, half-starved and severely decimated German troops. But the fighter of the Somme knew his duty, and at moments of danger he would be wide awake and ready for battle. From the rear, Guillemot appeared as a great cloud of dust, above which a huge wing of enemy aircraft cruised in circles in a clear blue sky. A hail of shells was coming down on the village. The defenders had to endure a terrible hammering and repeatedly to change their positions. Fire of all calibers went on until 3 p.m. The British then believed they had extinguished all trace of life and assaulted in dense masses. But no sooner were the enemy attacking waves visible out of the dust than they were engaged by machine guns firing from the gravel pit in front of the village. Each man excelled himself in the heroic struggle which followed. There was no need for orders. One shot, another threw grenades, a third stormed with the bayonet, but the enemy did not give up easily. Again and again he stormed the gravel pit and was always repulsed bloodily. On the right flank, the station was lost. The reserve company, dispatched forward, took a beating from the enemy artillery and only small groups got through. There were, however, sufficient to prevent the enemy from pressing forward. South of the gravel pit, the enemy also broke into our lines. The fourth company threw them back with grenades and cold steel. Wherever the British were in the rubble of the village, they were finished off in hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Our losses were bad, but the enemy suffered far more. The communique of the Supreme Army Headquarters for 21st August stated, Bitter fighting took place for the possession of the village of Guillemont. The Württemberg Kaiser Regiment victoriously beat off all attacks, and the village remains firmly in our hands. End quote. The gravel pit. Dr. Forderer mentioned must have been the quarry to the west of the village, and British troops entered a trench near to it despite impossibly heavy fire. They were later thrown out. The Guillemot station fell to the oncoming Tommies, so one link in the Germans' defenses was removed this way. 
near Jeanchy, men from two battalions took Zizi Trench for a little while, but German counterattacks there forced them out. To the south, the Germans withdrew to Felfamont Farm and Wedge Wood, leaving the Guillemont to Hardicourt road open for the taking. Over the following days, the fighting continued as men of the 3rd Rifle Brigade clung to the ruins of the rail station and others pushed on the rock quarry. There was a sense that Guillemont was starting to crack, although it was just a start. With the constant fighting and shelling, units in the line needed to be rotated out, and it was during these days that a young German Leutnant named Ernst Junger and his Fusilier Regiment 73 were called into the line at Guillemont. If you've been to university or college here in the U.S., or perhaps even high school here in the U.S., chances are you've at least seen the title The Storm of Steel on some reading lists or bookshelves. Junger, 19 years old when war broke out in 1914, wrote this World War I classic just after the war ended. The Storm of Steel was a publishing success in post-war Germany, and the memoir as novel was soon translated and published in English as well. Ernst Jünger, as a young man, was a product of his time. Born in 1895, he was a solid nationalist and militaristic, as young men can be. Before the war, he'd actually joined the French Foreign Legion, but apparently his dad went and dragged his ass back home. Good job, Dad. Junger didn't have to wait long for action, for when war broke out, he was all about it. He served on the Western Front and was a steadfast and exemplary combat leader. During the war, he was wounded seven times and was eventually awarded Germany's highest military medal, the Pour les Merites. His post-war life is a complex one and won't be discussed in detail here, but over the decades, he underwent many changes of thought, which included a lean towards anti-militarism. Junger and his platoon were dropped off at Sailly Saizel, and there met a guide who would lead them to their reserve station at Comble village. Junger, already wealthy with combat experience, nevertheless asked the guide what local conditions were like. Quote, A man in a steel helmet reported to me as guide to conduct my platoon to the renowned Comble, where for the time we were to be in reserve. Sitting with him at the side of the road, I asked him, naturally enough, what it was like in the line. In reply, I heard a monotonous tale of crouching all day in shell holes with no one on either flank and no trenches communicating with the rear, of unceasing attacks, of dead bodies littering the ground, of maddening thirst, of wounded and dying, and of a lot besides. The face half-framed by the steel rim of the helmet was unmoved. The voice, accompanied by the sound of battle, droned on, and the impression they made on me was one of unearthly solemnity. 
One could see the man had been through horror to the limit of despair and there had learnt to despise it. Nothing was left but supreme and superhuman indifference. End quote. Junger and his company made it to Comble, which was thoroughly shattered by artillery shells and where dead civilians caught in the fire, including a little girl, lay about in the open. In this desolate scene, Junger and his men tucked away in some ruined buildings until Comble was hit with a terrible barrage. During this nighttime shelling, they were called up to be sent to the front line at Guillemont. In the dark and under shellfire, Junger's guide lost his way, but eventually the men of Fusilier Regiment 73 made it to the area of Guillemont. On and on, some of the men collapsed as they ran, for we were compelled to force the last ounce from their exhausted bodies. Wounded men called to us on left and right from the shell holes and were disregarded. On and on, with our eyes fixed on the man in front, along a knee-deep trench formed of linked-up shell holes of enormous size, where the dead were almost touching. Our feet found little purchase against their soft and yielding bodies. Even the wounded who fell by the way shared the same fate and were trodden beneath the boots of those who still hurried on. And always this sickly smell, even my orderly, little Schmidt, my companion in many a dangerous patrol, began to reel. I snatched the rifle from his hand, though even at such a moment his politeness made him resist me. At last, we reached the front line. It was held by men cowering close in the shell holes, and their dead voices trembled with joy when they heard that we were the relief. A Bavarian sergeant major briefly handed over the sector and the very light pistol. My platoon front formed the right wing of the position held by the regiment. It consisted of a shallow, sunken road which had been pounded by shells. It was a few hundred meters left of Guillemont and a rather shorter distance right of Bois de Trons. We were parted from the troops on our right, the 76th Regiment of Infantry, by a space about 500 meters wide. This space was shelled so violently that no troops could maintain themselves there. The Bavarian Sergeant Major had vanished of a sudden and I stood alone, the very light pistol in my hand, in the midst of an uncanny sea of shell holes over which lay a white mist whose swaths gave it an even more oppressive and mysterious appearance. A persistent, unpleasant smell came from behind. I was left in no doubt that it came from a gigantic corpse far gone in decay. As I had no idea how far off the enemy were, I warned my men to be ready for the worst. We all remained on guard. I spent the night with my batman and two orderlies in a hole perhaps one yard square and one yard deep. When day dawned, we were astonished to see by degrees, what a sight surrounded us. The sunken road now appeared as nothing but a series of enormous shell holes filled with pieces of uniform, weapons, and dead bodies. Ground all round, as far as the eye could see, was plowed by shells. You could search in vain for one wretched blade of grass. This 
churned up battlefield was ghastly. Among the living lay the dead. As we dug ourselves in, we found them in layers stacked one upon the top of another. One company after another had been shoved into the drum fire and steadily annihilated. The corpses were covered with the masses of soil turned up by the shells, and the next company advanced in the place of the fallen. The sunken road and the ground behind was full of German dead, the ground in front of English. Arms, legs, and heads stuck out stark above the lips of the craters. In front of our miserable defenses, there were torn off limbs and corpses, over many of which cloaks and ground sheets had been thrown to hide the fixed stare of their distorted features. In spite of the heat, no one thought for a moment of covering them with soil. The village of Guillemont was distinguished from the landscape around it only because the shell holes there were of a whiter color by reason of the houses which had been ground to powder. Guillemont railway station lay in front of us. It was smashed to bits like a child's plaything. Delville Wood, reduced to matchwood, was further behind. Day had scarcely dawned when an English flying man descended on us in a steep spin and circled round incessantly like a bird of prey while we made for our holes and cowered there. Nevertheless, the observer's sharp eyes must have spied us out, for a siren sounded its deep, long-drawn notes above us at short intervals. After a little while, it appeared that a battery had received the signal. One heavy shell after another came at us on a flat trajectory with incredible fury. We crouched in our refuges and could do nothing. Now and then we lit a cigar and threw it away again. Every moment we expected a rush of earth to bury us. The sleeve of Schmidt's coat was torn by a big splinter. At the third shot, the occupant of the next hole to mine was buried by a terrific explosion. We dug him out instantly, but the weight of earth had killed him. His face had fallen in and looked like a death's head. It was the volunteer, Simon. Tribulation had made him wise. Whenever in the course of the day when airmen were about, anyone stirred from his cover, Simon was heard scolding, and his warning fist appeared from behind the ground sheet that curtained his earth. At three in the afternoon, the men came in from the left flank and said they could stick it no longer as their shelters were shot to bits. It cost me all my callousness to get them back to their posts. Just before 10 at night, the left flank of the regimental front was heavily shelled, and after 20 minutes, we came in for it too. In a brief space, we were completely covered in dust and smoke, and yet most of the hits were just in front or just behind. While this hurricane was raging, I went along my platoon front. The men were standing, rifle in hand, as though carved in stone, their eyes fixed on the ground in front of them. Now and then, by the light of a rocket, I saw the gleam of helmet after helmet, bayonet after bayonet, and I was filled with pride at commanding this handful of men that might very likely be pounded into the earth, but could not be conquered. It is in such moments that the human spirit triumphs over the mightiest demonstrations of material force. The fragile body, steeled by the will, stands up to the most terrific punishment. 
end quote. Author Michael Stedman, who wrote Guillemot for the Battleground Europe series of Battlefield tour books, has presented us with a great accompanying view of the very same area at the very same time. In his memoir titled Stand Two, A Diary of the Trenches, 1915 through 1918, British Army Captain F.C. Hitchcock wrote of his experiences in the front lines at Guillemot, where unknowingly he faced Ernst Jünger's regiment. Mr. Stedman incorporated the two accounts side by side in his book, and they really give vivid and horrific descriptions of what the Great War was like most of the time, that of surviving under bombardment. Hitchcock wrote, quote, The CO met us near battalion headquarters and conducted the company across the open and behind the front line to the sunken road junction. Here we entered the trench and proceeded to take over or relieve the isolated sentry posts in our area. On arrival, we learned that Poole and Barry, who had gone on in advance to reconnoiter the line, had been wounded. We actually relieved two units, both of which were Bantam battalions, the umpteenth battalions of the Gloucester Regiment and Sherwood Foresters. Our men chaffed the little West countrymen with uproarious Irish bandage. The battalion found itself astride the sunken road with Guillemont some 150 yards away. We were in the exact line that we had held on the night, the 18th through the 19th of August. A Company was on the left in front of Arrowhead Cops. We, C Company, were on the right. Both companies joined at the barrier on the sunken road where the battalion bombers and a section of the machine gun corps were posted. C Company also found a detached post away on the right flank. Later, I was to get well acquainted with this isolated detachment. B and D companies were in support and reserve, respectively. Battalion headquarters was behind A Company and parallel with the sunken road. On duty all night, as Liston felt very ill but would not leave the line. I walked all night, visiting the sentries. It rained hard, and we got shelled severely every half hour. I rested for some time on a muddy fire step with Corporal Broadbent. Private O'Leary, Jim Marsland's scout of Hooge days, was standing up on the fire step on sentry go beside me. I left him in that position and in 10 minutes returned to find a colossal shell crater in the parapet, or where it had been. Poor Broadbent was dead and badly smashed up, and O'Leary, the keen sentry of 10 minutes previously, was terribly cut about the head and body, and was raving. Morrissey and Reed took him away. Never did I expect to see him again. We spent the night deepening the trench and building up the parapets, what cover suited the bantams of 4 feet 8 inches to 5 feet did not suit the second Leinsters, averaging 5 feet 10 inches. 24th August. At 5 a.m., I met the CO who had come up to inspect the line. He was particularly sympathetic about the casualties. We toured the whole company front, including the detached post. To get to it, we had to cut across the open. However, as it was foggy, the Huns did not observe us. We found Jameson and his platoon under deplorable conditions, and all around them were enemy dead, 
and the little ditch of a trench full of mud with pieces of equipment and half-buried corpses. Jameson was cheery, but complained of being short of rations. This post on the right of the company was at least 200 yards away from the main line. It had no CT or wire entanglements, but was echelon back facing Lou's wood. Later in the day, I got in touch with a unit on Jameson's right. We were subject to heavy shellfire all morning. Company Sergeant Major Kerrigan got badly wounded in the arm. Also, Sergeant Dignam and a few men. From battalion headquarters, we understood another unit was taking over this detached post. Shellfire was hellish all afternoon. Box barrages were put down all around, and the earth was going up like volcanoes, completely smothering us. The heat was intense, and as we were all sweating pretty freely, we got into a filthy state. Crouching in the trench, hugging the forward side, one could feel every minute small stones and lumps of earth ricochet off one's helmet. Now and then, one would be almost smothered by the parapet being blown in. The dirt flying about and the fumes from the lidite added to our discomfiture. During a bombardment, one developed a craze for two things, water and cigarettes. Few could ever eat under an intense bombardment, especially on the Somme, where every now and then a shell would blow pieces of mortality or complete bodies, which had been putrefying in no man's land, slap into one's trench. Shellfire, too, always stirred up the swarms of black flies, of which there was an absolute plague on the Somme battlefields. The bombardment was intense. At times, it reminded me of Uj, exactly one year previously. I had been in command of the company all day, and as part of our front line on the right of the sunken road was completely obliterated and untenable, I got the platoons to sidestep to the flanks. Our whole line was one cloud of smoke. Evidently, the Huns anticipated an attack as they sent all kinds of colored SOS very lights up. I got our Lewis guns into position and gave the order to fix bayonets. In such a case, this is always good for morale. Throughout the bombardment, the men were splendid. Not a sentry shirked his duty. End quote. Ernst Jünger made it back to Combe with the remnants of his platoon, and there he was wounded when the ruined village was shelled yet again. He was evacuated to the rear, and his company eventually went back in the line at Guillemont. There, it was annihilated. Not one man got back to Combe to tell the tale of this heroic fight that was fought to the finish with such bitterness, Jünger later wrote. The villages, or rather the spot where they had been, stayed in German hands despite the onslaughts described above. Lieutenant Obermuller of Infantry Regiment 120 later wrote, We have been pulled out of the front line as lords and masters of Guillemot. If you believe that so-called street fighting is taking place in and around Guillemot, you are very much mistaken. Guillemont is just one great heap of stones. Not a single wall remains standing. This accursed village finally fell to an attack by the British 16th Irish and 20th Divisions on the 3rd of September. The 47th Brigade of the 16th Irish hit Guillemont from the north 
while the 59th Brigade of the 20th Division hit it from the south. After the usual artillery bombardment swept the German defenses amidst the muddy rubble fields, the creeping barrage would kick in again and the Tommies would follow it. Once in the vicinity of the village, special attention was to be paid to the entrances to dugouts and tunnels, and Sergeant A.K. Patterson of the 11th Battalion Rifle Brigade recounted what these German creations were like. Quote, You went down steps to these places, but the steps didn't go straight down. They would go down, say, three steps to the left, then three steps straight, followed by four to the right, until they reached the bottom, the idea being that nobody could throw a bomb directly down the hole of the entrance. Ordinary bombs, demolition bombs, would just burst halfway down and the worst they would do would be to block up the passage, and they always had an escape route. So our job was to demolish the front of them, break down the doors and entrances, open them up a bit so that the bombers could get at them. Well, the Jerrys weren't just going to sit there and let us hammer away demolishing the front of these dugouts, so first thing, we had to throw down phosphorus bombs, smoke bombs. You'd strike the smoke bomb on an ignition brassard you had strapped around your arm and fling it down the steps. The bombs gave off a thick, suffocating smoke, which, being heavy, flowed down the winding steps and spread out in the large spaces below so that it would either drive the Germans out or suffocate them. We had to carry extra haversacks full of these phosphorus bombs and, as well as that, and extra ammunition and all the rest of our normal equipment, every man had to carry either a pick or a shovel, one each. It was a wonder we were able to get out of the trench because we had to get over a big bank that we'd made ourselves in front of our trenches for cover, and then beyond that was all the wire and water. Zero hour was supposed to be midday. The idea was that, about ten minutes before zero hour, our bombardment of their lines increased in volume, and, when that noise stopped, which meant that your covering fire from the field guns was lifting ahead, that was your signal to go over the top. Well, maybe the firing stopped. If it did, nobody noticed it, because the Germans were still bombarding our front line, and the shells were bursting all over the place, and the shells of our heavy barrage were going over our heads. The noise was so deafening that, days later, it was still resounding in our ears, and we were supposed to listen. We went over by the time on our watches, and my platoon was leading, an extended order, three to four paces between each man. You couldn't say, you go straight across that way. You'd have to go around huge holes, and with more shells falling all around, it was very difficult to keep going in a straight line. Very difficult to keep the men together in any kind of formation. Very difficult to know what was happening. End quote. The assault wasn't a cakewalk by any means, but the artillery had had some effect on the defenses. Oberleutnant von Hornbostel of the 1st Company, Fusilier Regiment 73, reported the conditions later. Quote, During the night, the 2nd through the 3rd of September, 1st Company relieved the 12th Company in the 2nd line near Guillemont. Enemy artillery had damaged the trench badly. All the so-called dugouts in the center had been crushed, but were roughly repaired prior to the company being allocated shelters. The morale of the men who had arrived at the trench without casualties was good. The officers went to the flanks. I myself was on the left. We did not succeed in establishing the link with Infantry Regiment 164. 
Artillery fire continued throughout the night, increased in intensity the following morning, and reached a peak around midday. Numerous dugouts were wrecked once more. The artillery fire that we had called for with signal flares was not fired. There was much aerial activity, which made observation difficult, even over our sector. Suddenly came the report. The British are outside the dugout. At the same instant, hand grenades detonated, and, with the exception of Unteroffizier Brand, all the occupants of the dugout were dead or mortally wounded. I myself suffered multiple wounds. On my order, Brand left the dugout. Resistance was pointless and impossible, and he was captured. The remainder of First Company put up an energetic fight. With a few exceptions, the entire trench garrison was killed both lieutenants amongst them. I myself lost consciousness due to loss of blood. In the first hospital, I was found to have been wounded 20 times. Some hand grenade splinters were not removed until later. Until 7th September, I was only conscious occasionally. In the hospital at Dartford, men of the first company said the enemy who had broken through attacked from the rear. End quote. Fortress Guillemont fell, and it came as a body blow to the German army. They had fought so impossibly hard to hold on to the village. Whole units had been consumed in the dreadful battle within the battle. The 3rd Company of Fusilier Regiment 73 had seen every single member killed in action. No one was left to give testimony to the company's history years later. Jianxi, a kilometer and a half to the north, was also taken that day. However, here, the Germans counterattacked and took half the village back. This was another fight for the 16th Irish Division, and these fighting Irish kept up the pressure. Fighting raged for the next days over the ruins of the village as well as the quadrilateral redoubt east of it. With the Irish Tommies of the 16th attacking the defending 5th Bavarian Division time and again. On the 9th of September, Jeanchy fell. The village had been outflanked, and when the Germans inside realized it, they broke and ran towards Flair and Le Boeuf villages to the north and northeast. The Irish kept pushing past the village, seizing even Lou's wood to the east that day as well. Another German counterattack aimed at Lousy Wood failed as well. The British had seized the two villages after much sacrifice of much blood and youth, but the Germans were left reeling. It wasn't a perfect victory as the triumphant Tommies were left in a bulging salient that immediately became the target of every German gun in the area, but it was a victory. Of note are two individual deaths that took place on the 9th of September, 1916. At Guillemont, a Major Cedric Dickens was killed. He was the grandson of Charles Dickens, the Charles Dickens. A memorial near the site of his death stands near Guillemont today. Killed at Jeanchy on the 9th of September was one Thomas Kettle, an ascending Irish politician who was a known advocate for home rule on the Emerald Isle. 
The plight of the Irish working poor was his major and well-known area of political concentration. Having seen the effects of the Great War as a correspondent in 1914, Kettle returned home and joined the British Army to fight against the more dangerous enemy, the Germans. He eventually gained a commission and became an officer in the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, and it was with them that he was killed during the attack on Jeanchy. Kettle had left a poem for his then three-year-old daughter titled, To My Daughter Betty, The Gift of God. And it is a good work with which to close this episode out. In wiser days, my darling rosebud, blown to beauty proud as was your mother's prime, in that desired, delayed, incredible time, you'll ask why I abandoned you, my own. And the dear heart that was your baby throne to dice with death. And oh, they'll give you rhyme and reason. Some will call the thing sublime and some decry it in a knowing tone. So here, while the mad guns curse overhead and tired men sigh with mud for couch and floor, know that we fools, now with the foolish dead, died not for flag, nor king, nor emperor, but for a dream born in a herdsman's shed, and for the secret scripture of the poor. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at at WW1podcast. You can also go to the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thanks again for the reviews, and thank you as always for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.